0: The following talk is from St. Michael's Fullwell, a gospel-centered community for Fulwell, Teddington and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfullwell.co.uk. Welcome everyone to the St. Michael's podcast. Hooray! Um, We're stepping outside the bounds of what as Michael's podcast normally does. We're joined with special guests, friend, father, preacher, and potentially a historian, we're about to find out, our very own James Bunyan. Welcome. Hello. 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 Uh, we are meeting in a pub. We've got some nice ambience, yeah. uh, which potentially is quite apt for who we're talking about today. Uh, we're focusing on a, an individual, a man, today. Is that correct? We are. A man, Thank yeah. goodness we're on the right podcast. Um, and Uh, Who is this person? Can you place us in history? Yeah, so we're looking at a fascinating guy, a guy called Martin Luther, potentially one of the most influential people, not just in Christian history, but possibly in world history. We'll dig into that a little bit. This is episode two. So a couple of weeks ago, we did Luther in 60 Minutes, where basically I aimed to get through four sections, what the world that Luther arrived in was like. So medieval Roman Catholic church that he kind of entered into. Secondly, the events of his life. Thirdly, the kind of shape of his thoughts, things that he's kind of said in all his scholarly works. And fourthly, the strengths and weaknesses. It. I aim too high, if I'm honest. Sam. Oh, oh dear. Yeah, I. I think the poor guys are in the room. I. I quickly got through. I think the events of his life. Okay. And no further. Ah. Okay, so a strong. 60 minutes on the life of Luther. Yeah. I mean, punchy. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's yeah. Good. Well, this is the thing. Is it? Not only is the, this stuff important, but his life was actually fascinating. You've got kidnappings, you've got marriage to runaway nuns, you've got uh, lots of toilet jokes. I mean, he is a fascinating guy. So worth listening to the episode one. This is episode two, but we're going to cover everything else, is the idea. Excellent. Well, that's great. And of course, because this is a, a two-parter, everyone will have listened to part one. Yeah. But say someone's podcast app just throws out part two. Yeah. Very short summary. Try 30 seconds condensed 60 minutes into 30 seconds of Easy. podcast one here we go born Germany in the 16th century enters the Roman Catholic Church as a monk uh, and a priest he then discovers lots of doctrines like justification by faith in the Bible which we'll dig into and starts the Protestant movement in Germany that spread around especially northern Europe and he for rest of his life, taught the Bible, was a university lecturer, and kind of reformed the church, especially in Germany, but elsewhere, and lots of his works survive for us today. Wow, that's pretty good, strong. Thank you. Uh, strong 30 seconds. So basically that says, go and listen to part one, because there are lots of words in there I, I've heard, but maybe I didn't understand, so uh, part one might open it up for me. But uh, kicking us off, kind of in what Luther thought, uh, and kind of his big ideas, yeah, how cutting-edge were these ideas? Like, where do they come from? What is the main thing? Yeah, well, you've actually, I think, stumbled upon one of the big debates of this part of history. So the Roman Catholic Church, when Luther came along, would quit say, you're stepping outside of the church. You're stepping outside of what the church has always believed, what it's always taught. That is madness. You and the rest of the reformers are leaving Christianity. And he was saying, no, 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 no. I'm rediscovering Christianity, I'm reading the ancient church fathers, I'm looking at the Bible first and foremost, and it's the Roman Catholic Church that changed. Wow. And, yeah, and even today, one of the big debates among uh, kind of Reformation historians is to what extent is Luther and the Reformation a break with what went before, or is it a continuity with what happened before, in lots of different ways, not least because... I mean, in the first podcast, we had to speak quite generally. The Roman Catholic Church in the medieval times it was not in a great place. Okay. Uh, and there were things that were generally true, but there was a great variety within it. And he was you know, reacting to some of the popular level dodgy stuff, but there, I'm sure there was other stuff going on. And someone like Calvin, another reformer, would constantly quote the church fathers and things like that. So he, he certainly rediscovered stuff that's in the Bible. Um, and I think for that, we can be really, really grateful. Amazing. So among the first to kind of relook, delve deep, not just take what's coming at them at face value and thinking, I need to return to the text and, uh, and push things back at the church. Yeah, and that certainly had not happened for a few centuries, I think. because okay, so the church got powerful. Church powerful. And the big thing is, the language of the church became the language of the Roman Empire, so Latin. The Bible was written in Latin. Okay. Uh, only those who can read Latin can access the Bible, which became the priests, which then meant what the priests were saying and what the Bible says. So that would be totally different to how most churches function now that potentially we've been in. Yeah. Um, it seems so unusual to have a church service based around a language you don't understand. Yes, but so that's because of the 21st century and frankly that's because of Luther. So, that's big! I mean, yeah, that is big. And this is the thing with him is that We'll go through now the shape of his thought, the kind of things that he believed. We'll every time we hear an idea of his, we'll go, "Yeah, yeah, I know that. That's obvious." The reason it's obvious to us is because of Luther and him rediscovering this and pushing it, and not just rediscovering it. There are things that he made even clearer than uh, what earlier theologians have said. Bits of the Bible that he really highlighted that we just hadn't gone big on before, and so we are very indebted to. him. Nice. And you, you mentioned a few bits of that there, but rather than jump straight into faith alone, uh, what, how do you summarise Luther's kind of big point against the Catholic Church? Yeah, so we're going to go through lots of different things. But I think um, in part one, I went into kind of where the medieval Catholic Church were landing with lots of this stuff. So we're going to go lots of different ideas. And some of these ideas might be a bit tricky to follow in some ways, or I might not explain them that well. So here's one big idea that I'd like to be the headline of the whole thing. And that is this. That in Luther's thinking, and in Reformation theology in general, God is really big, humanity is really small. God is massive, and humanity is really small. God is massive, humanity. That seems obvious. Yeah. I'm not going to lie, that seems obvious. <laughs> God is much bigger than I am. But we've heard that message a lot. Um, Captain Church not saying that? Well, it's just that they obviously would say that. Of course they would say that. But in lots of their theology, you actually end up with a view of God that's much smaller. So, for instance, we talked a little bit about uh, sin and how because you must get to know God and be in heaven, therefore, uh, because you have to follow him, you must be able to follow him in some ways, and actually good deeds do count a little bit towards. You're kind of made right with God, partly because he helps you, but partly because you step in and do lots of good things that he will then weigh in your merit later on in life. And what that does is it makes humanity a little bit bigger in its capacity and its ability to kind of save itself, and it makes God that little bit smaller. Whereas Luther, actually, goes the other way around, says, Look, humanity is desperately lost and ruined and you need God to step in. He thinks this in his kind of how people are saved, how God reveals himself, in how we know things, in what the church is. He kind of goes, Look, humanity, let's make it really, really small and make God really, really big. So Yeah, I'm gonna read something. This is from Martin Luther. Um I'm tempted to try a German accent, but I won't.
1: Um, I, I wouldn't, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll
0: hold yeah. off. So Look My God, without merit on my part, of his pure and free mercy, has given to me an unworthy, condemned, and contemptible creature all the riches of justification and salvation in Christ, so that I no longer am in want of anything except of faith to believe that this is so. For such a father, then, who has overwhelmed me with these inestimable riches of his, why should I not freely, cheerfully, and with my whole heart, and from voluntary zeal, do all that I know will be pleasing to him and acceptable in his sight. Brilliant. Yeah, and yes. that's from, I mean, it's just brilliant stuff, and that's him all over. We'll read a couple of things of his. That's from a book called On the Freedom of the Christian. It's one of his first kind of major works in 1520. I say major, it's quite a short booklet, it's about yeah. 27 pages. Okay. But it's just full of punchy stuff like that. Do you see that, you know, God, without merit on my part, Has done this for us, even though we are condemned, unworthy, contemptible. Mm. It's staring stuff. Big God, small humanity. I can see how that comes through. And so, it's interesting. Um, There's a a good number of questions. um, And I guess one of the things is, how bad are humans? Yeah, great. So, we'll move through his thoughts. And yeah, Sam, you just kind of... Hit me with these kinds of these these questions as we kind of go through them, and I guess I'll say a little bit about what Luther believes on each one. Fine. Okay. So first one is, how bad are humans? (laughs) Well, in Roman Catholicism, they're bad. There is original sin. Sorry, in medieval Roman Catholicism, as it's kind of right now, it's bad, but it can't be that miserably bad that because it must be able to do good works. And there must be something about us that gets purified by the sacraments that the church offers. So that's confession, penance, the mass. So there must be, they might not have said there's some good in humanity. But the reality is there are things we can do to get there. Okay. And there's a guy called Erasmus. He was the guy who translated or kind of first produced the, 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 the New Testament or reproduced the New Testament in Greek around the time of Luther. Why Greek? Because it was the language that was originally written. Right, and so it's kind of by using the earliest Greek manuscripts, you can say this is this is what we know the apostles wrote down by rather than a priest's interpretation or not even interpretation, just what they say exactly. exactly. Okay. so he so he helped really helped the Reformation, but he wasn't reformed himself. He thought the Roman Catholic Church just had to kind of do a spring clean, tidy itself up, get rid of some abuses, things like that, and he wrote in. Uh, 1524, so in 1520 Luther wrote a book called The Freedom of the Christian Man Erasmus, yeah. in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, then wrote they all kind of knew each other, as a small kind of university world where they're all firing letters to each other, right? Academics fighting it out through text. Yeah, there is a bit of that, Did you know, I, I read this week Luther and Henry VIII wrote letters to each other Henry VIII hated Luther. Wow Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised I don't know why, I just get a sense. They're both quite laddie. They but are lad, yeah, yeah. But Maybe they're like laddies, lads that battle. Yeah,
1: right, yeah, yeah I, know I know
0: what you mean. I know what mean. So, in, not far from here, Hampton Court, mm-hmm. as yeah, know, Henry VIII received letters from Martin Luther in that place, which is quite cool. That is quite and cool. And yeah, they hate each other. So, Henry VIII was a bit of a staunch Catholic. For a time. For a time, he wants to get married. It's all very complicated to him, right? He didn't like Luther. Okay. Um, so, they're all writing to each other. So, Freedom of the Christian Man, written 1520, Erasmus responds with freedom of the will. You see? Play on words. I very see clever. That, yeah. Very witty. And he is basically saying, look, let's do good things so we can please God. Because they're thinking, look, if, if Luther, if what Luther is saying is true, and we'll come on to what Luther is saying, then maybe there's no incentive for doing good at all. If you're just pardoned and forgiven by God, then what's the point of doing good? That's a question a lot of us have, I think. Like... If it's all done what's the use yeah so we're going to circle back to that we are and thank goodness okay I, i've got so he whole, writes this freedom of the will and then the luther responds with bondage of the will you see again okay. another very clever play on words and he writes in the kind of preface erasmus you alone have put your finger on the issue of the reformation which is how do we get right with god you've done that that is that's kind of your issue and it he spends a lot of his time on the bondage world talking about the, human, the sin in the human heart and the problem okay. with humanity. It's not that we are capable of good and bad and that we must try and work to choose the good and godly things to do. It's that our wills are free in that we can always do what we want to do, but our wills are under bondage of sin, which means the things we want to do are sin. It's not that if we just want God, we'll obey him. We just don't want God. It's humanity. Sinners, and Adam and Eve, in the garden, they didn't want God's commands. They didn't want to obey Him and follow Him. They wanted to do their own thing and become like God themselves. And in the same way, human beings are sinful. We turn away from God. We don't want him, and we just follow our wills wherever they go, which is largely kind of into bondage and destruction. Okay, so that seems like a slight tweak on lots of people's understanding of sin from... Sin is acts I do. If I do this bad thing, I can balance out with this good thing, and there's kind of the scales, and there's that. Whereas this turns that up, throws all of that out, and says, no, no, sin is entirely to do with how you relate to God. Yeah. And therefore, what you're doing isn't helping at all. Exactly, and because we hate God, even things we do which look quite good are just extensions of our rebellion and us hating God and being full of misery. Mm. So this is from. Uh, a bit of Luther. This is him in his commentary on Galatians. Uh, He's talking about works. He says, there is no work that can take away sin, but sin is rather increased by works. For the justiciaries and the merit mongers, the more they labour and sweat to bring themselves out of sin, the deeper they are plunged therein. In other words, if you try and do good things, and he did as a monk before he kind of got his revelation of this stuff, try and do good things, It doesn't bring you close to God. It actually takes you further away. Humanity is really bad. That is bad. That is bad. (laughs) Um, So, next question. How do we know what is true? Because now we've got priests saying, this is what I think the Bible is. We've got Erasmus saying, here's the original in Greek, if you're lucky enough to read it. And then you've got Martin Luther saying, no, here's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the big word for this, for Luther, is humility. And even from the start, so he was the first person, like you said, to rediscover this stuff, which kind of means that he's not learning from anyone except possibly the scriptures and his friends that he's talking to. So you and I, if we want to know what the received wisdom is on a topic, we might pick up a filter, or speak to a pastor. He's not got any of that. He's just kind of... So his thought develops over the years. But one thing that's there all the way through is humility. He sees medieval Catholicism as really arrogant. The idea that humans can be big, humans can kind of save themselves, do good works before God. He's saying, no, 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 we must be completely humble. And that really impacts how we know what is true. If you humble yourself to what God says, you can hear from him in the Bible, not, kind of exalt yourself to know the grand things of God and to hear from the Roman Catholic Church um, in that sense so the short the short answer is uh, is that how do we know what is true is what the it's what the Bible says not what the Roman Catholic Church says but there is a longer answer okay we might circle back to a longer answer okay um, what if it's not that long what if it's medium answer it's we'll, just this we'll little try we'll go. We'll go. we'll go we'll go you can cut me off if you get bored sure um, so, basically, he's got this idea of saying, and it's from 1 Corinthians, which we're learning about in the evening service, he says, look, there are some who call themselves the theologians of glory, who are kind of excited with big ideas and kind of noble ideas and philosophy and kind of the things that the church can produce, and he's got in mind kind of high-minded academics and white towers, who are kind of, ivory towers, sorry, who are thinking about, I don't know, how many angels can dance on the head of a Whatever it is, kind of these abstract notions. There's a deep question, which we should put more effort in. To <laughs> yeah, I mean, those emotions. pins, goodness me. Yeah, he saying, no, no. Instead of theologians of glory, you should think about theologians of the cross. and knowing the gospel, it's about humility. Yeah. God makes Himself known in humbleness. So he says, instead of looking at trying to work out the things of God by yourself in all His grandeur and holiness, look at Jesus who is someone who came down to this earth in humility, in a stable, was a normal person, died on the cross in great ignobility. And that's how you know God, is seeing and in his gospel, in Jesus, in human flesh, uh, in the kind, of, the, the kind of misery and humility of the cross. And when we humble ourselves and decide to be like him, know that we're sinners, and to think about Jesus on the cross, that's when we truly know God. So that's quite... Uh, Massive for him. I, I guess a, a quick way say is it's all about Jesus for right? him. We know about God through Jesus and everything he's done, not anything else. Nice. Again, potentially, we're hearing this and going, yeah, of course. I, I know this. Jesus is the man. This is He's the one to go to. Um, but I can see if you've got people spending all their time thinking about angels, yeah. this is a revelation yeah. and yeah. really counter-cultural. Yeah. Okay, next question. How does God work in our world? So, I mean, this one is a big area, and there's a, there's a where you can see the continuity between the the kind of scholars before Luther and Luther, um, and this is brought out by a guy called Carl Truman, who's who's brilliant boy. If you can read anything by Carl Truman, do it. But he wrote a book on Luther's thinking, where he really shows this. He says basically, God works in our world by His Word. That's the big thing. He works by His Word, and he points to. Creation and says that how does God create everything in Genesis? He speaks by His word, He says, and everything comes into being. And in the same way, He redeems by His word, He speaks over us the gospel. And when we hear it and respond to it, and it becomes part of us, we're made new. Just as He spoke life and light into darkness in Genesis 1, so He speaks life and light into individuals when they believe the gospel, who believe the word of God, that the word has power in and of itself. That actually it comes and then dwells within us and transforms us into people who know God. That it's an inside out type of thing. So for him, the main way that God works in the world is through the word. The word of God is the way that God works. See, now that's really interesting because sometimes I hear it used the word And gloss over it, kind of assume I know what I'm talking about. Linking it to actual speech, just hearing words, the word words, is quite a big idea. So God works through His Word. Again, we hear this quite a lot on Sundays. Yeah, revelatory for that. God doesn't work through priests, doesn't work through relics, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, so uh, you, can, you can contrast that with some guys who made mistakes. So okay. back in 1522, there were some guys called the Zwickau prophets. Good name. They, great name. They turned up in great name, bad people. They turned sure. up in Wittenberg while Luther was actually in hiding somewhere else in Germany, uh, in exile, kind of scared for his life. We'll circle back to that. That sounds fascinating. Well, it's in the first one. So, okay, we won't circle back. Just listen again. Part one. Yeah, but they turned up and they started saying, guys. You don't need to listen to what the Catholic Church are saying, or at least that's not the primary way of God's revealing Himself to us. Big tick. Uh, we like that. It says instead, you listen to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's speaking to us in our hearts right now. So let's we'll tell you what to believe and what to think. Remember the, the power exactly once, and that's what the Catholic Church was scared of. Is to think, look, once you take away the Church as the interpreters, anything can happen. And these guys, as Rick our prophets, kind of cause chaos in Wittenberg. i saying, look. You should just believe what we think, follow what we think. Luther said, came back and said, no, 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 that's not how the Holy Spirit works. In fact, in Luther's thought, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit that much, apart from the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and makes it come to life. Word and Spirit go together for Luther. And so what that means in practice is, now viewers can't, can't see this, but I'm holding my Bible as a separate bit. On my hands, he's chosen this is his most raggedy Bible. It is his well-loved, his well-loved Bible. Uh, it is a separate thing to my body. No matter how I'm feeling or how I'm doing, this is separate and outside of me. I can always trust what it says because it doesn't. The words don't change on the paper depending on what I'm feeling. So the words don't change depending on what I'm feeling. And for Luther, that is massive. He so says, "Look, the only thing you can really, really properly rely on is." The word of God. And for Luther that's got a kind of couple of really important implications. You might have heard him say the quote that he's uh, talking about the Reformation, he's looking back on the Reformation, and evangelicals we quote this all the time because we like the Bible as well, a bit like he does. And he said once I think I've written it down somewhere. Hang on, let me find it let me find it my notes. Yeah, he says, look how did the Reformation happen? I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amstdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no price or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Wow. Yeah, he's like, I did nothing, the word did everything. That yeah, that's a big deal. Like just, just reading. He understood challenge what was the, the superpower of the day. Yeah, the church. I, he's not, in fairness, he said that in 1522 when the Reformation looked like it's going really, really well. Right. 10 to 15 years later, it's still going quite well in Germany, but the reality is the Roman Catholic Church hasn't imploded, hasn't collapsed. Right. If anything, it's getting a bit stronger, I especially see. in the south of Europe. The next hundred years no. seem to be a bit resurgent for, 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 for Catholicism. Uh, it's not that everyone becomes Christian. And so he is a kind of triumphalist note, he says there in 1522, that he probably wouldn't say again later on in his life. Interesting. Okay. But the centrality of God's word doesn't change. The fact that he becomes all about um, preaching God's word. And actually, his priorities are preaching the Bible, teaching the Bible, and training preachers. No more will we have Catholic priests who are there to do the Mass. Instead, we have people to preach the word who are trained to handle the Bible. Nice. So uh, how's he doing that? How's he training people? Because surely he's going to get some flack coming back at him. I guess he's already run away once. How's he training people alongside them? Yeah, so he, uh, through universities. Okay. It's often true that you are trying to, if you want to reach culture, one of the best places to go is universities. You've got the leaders of tomorrow, the leaders of tomorrow. He, the, he's kind of in quite a lucky place because the Holy Roman Empire which rose is, is a slightly odd place for us you've got an emperor who's over the whole of Germany and Northern Italy but within that you've got these like princes who kind of run their own county if you like as a okay. CEO of their own he's got a guy called Frederick the Elector of Saxony his area is Saxony and Frederick can do what he likes and what he likes to do is look after Luther that's strong yeah so he set up a new university and made Luther the head of New Testament. So Luther's teaching through there. And he kind of became the kind of de facto head of that wing of the church in that area. He's just training preachers, sending them out. everywhere. And lots of people who are Catholic priests in that area don't really have a choice. If they want to keep their jobs, they need to convert to Lutheranism. So they do, and they start teaching in a Lutheran way. Well, I mean, what a Frederick. Mm. Good man. Yeah, top gazer. Uh, so, uh, coming back, I think probably to a point we we dangled earlier on. Uh, how does man get reconciled to God then? If you know we've been working our way through what sin is and the word, the importance of the word. How does man get reconciled to God in Luther's mind if it's no longer through a priest and good works? Yeah, well, for him, it's, it's not works at all. It, you can't save yourself from the world. The reality is, as we said about sin, we can't do religiously good deeds and get there. That's just not how it works. And in fact, for Luther, the law of God to, the, to kind of do these, you know, like the Ten Commandments, things like that, the bits of the Bible that says, do this, to God. The main function of that, Luther says, is that it shows you that you can't do it. So you might think, well, you know, do not kill. I've never killed someone. Sure, but Jesus shows us that do not kill applies to even our hearts. That If we've ever hated someone or not kind of prospered their life in any way, then we've broken that law and those have broken all the laws. And the way that kind of applies is as we read the Bible, as we read the law, we become really conscious of our own sin and we become conscious that we cannot please God. The law and religious works do not save you. They just show you you're a sinner. I mean, all of this is quite miserable so far. Yeah. That's hard, hard sell. Hard truths. Hard truths Home come down. Truth. Yeah. But the, the hard truths that make humanity small make God really big. <laughs> oh, this is where the good stuff comes in. For Luther, Jesus saves you. He saves you completely. So, you and I, we're miserable offenders. We cannot do anything. Jesus' life, death and resurrection saved someone and it's mediated to you. You approach Jesus, you ask him to save you by faith and he gives you his justification. He makes, gives you all of his righteousness by himself. And this is, this is a bit of a scandal to the Roman Catholic Church that you can just freely receive the forgiveness of God. But it wasn't just a scandal that you are saved by faith and you're justified by grace. It was also a scandal the way that Martin Luther communicated it. So in his book Freedom of the Christian, he has this big analogy. And he says, imagine a prince marries a whore. Okay? When the prince marries a whore, the whore becomes royal. She doesn't have to act more royal and then he'll marry her. He's not marrying her because she's attractive. Instead, he marries her and then she becomes attractive. He he kind of creates the attraction in her by marrying her. She then becomes royal, and as she becomes royal, though she's still kind of got her kind of slightly whorish ways, she basically then begins to act like a princess. Now that is, is scandalous, and yeah. the, the Roman Catholic Church were not happy about this. I, I can see why. It's a it's a punchy illustration. It is. Um, haven't seen no one used, St. Uh, Michael's yet. No. Still time. Well, yeah. Still time. Well, you know, people wrote back to him and said, the Church of God is not a whore. Yes, I mean, this is what people would naturally want to, to go to. I guess, because of that lack of wanting to humble yourself, it, it goes against the dignity people feel humanity has. Yes. And people hold on to that dignity very strongly, even if they have no idea where it's from. But it gives them, once we are saved, great dignity. Because the problem with the Roman, medieval Roman Catholic system is, You don't know when you're saved. Yes. Whereas the moment you're married, the ball becomes a princess. The moment you trust in Jesus, all of his goodness is given to you. And he he just loves you. He just absolutely loves you. And his writing, I know we've talked about the miserable stuff so far, about human views. The reality is, all of Luther's writing is filled with joy and this kind of, it's just overflowing and bubbling with this happiness that Jesus loves us and saves us. And we must hold to this idea of justification by faith. To be fair, of all the early reformers, Luther seems the most jolly. I don't get it. well, it could be unfair, but uh, Calvin, potentially a bit morose. Yeah. A bit of a bookworm, Yeah, not down the pub. Well, I know, Luke, Calvin actually shut all the pubs. Yes, so, Calvin... Thumbs up in your book. Brilliant brain. Yeah. Not one you want to invite around. No. Very nice. Casual pint. Whereas Luther said, um, this was not that famous, he said, when you drink beer, you sleep. And when you sleep, you can't sin. And when you don't sin, you go to heaven. There's a good logic in that. There. Yeah. There's a good logic in that. Yeah. Uh, well done Luther. He was joking. That kind of goes against the justification by faith. But yeah. It uh, but hey. He loves beer. He loves beer. That's the kind of, le- kind of level he works at. Yeah. yeah. Bit of a joke. he's not all super serious. No. Uh, and I love that. Well done Luther. Sure. Levity. Good man. Uh, right, so, uh, this actually works quite well. What would a daily life of a Christian be like then, in Luther's mind? And yeah. Beyond? Well, for Luther then, the the kind of big activity of the Christian is to look not to yourself, but to look to Jesus. And to look at him as an external thing. So... The word, you know, holding my Bible again, the word isn't external to you. Mm-hmm. It is not found in your own heart. It does change your heart, but the truth of it is just out there. And the day that took a not like the Zikhael prophets, not to kind of hear the voice of the Spirit in your head or anything like that, but it's to look at what the Spirit of God is saying in the word. So you look outside yourself. And as an illustration of this, I mean, he was known to, sometimes when he was really struggling with doubts, and he struggled with doubts all his life, he would take a piece of chalk and draw a Bible verse on the wall, and drop the chalk and just point to it. and Think that is what's true, not what's in here. That's that's quite cool. Yeah. Like one, here in the cutting edge reformer had doubts, mm. but also had a, a remedy for his own doubts, which was namely just literally pointing at the Word of God. Yeah. One thing that would would think seem quite odd to us. Yeah. Is that. He had a big, big, big view of the sacraments. Okay. Now, hang on. Sacraments. Just for someone who doesn't know. Yeah. The sacraments are the signs that God has given the church that, in addition to the Bible, teach the gospel. Okay. So those are your, your big hitters. Yeah, go on. Uh, marriage. Marriage. Uh, it's not, not not good because I yeah. who would have said it, who <laughs> said it would have been married? Yeah. Um, well, the Roman, medieval Roman Catholic Church did.
1: Is that right? That's they true. had
0: seven, we've got two. Come on, guys. Nice. <laughs> so that was you got one of the seven. Roma. Right. Medieval Roman Catholics. Shh, idiots. Um, <laughs> so instead, uh, communion. Yep. Oh, communion. Yep. Yes, nailed it. And um, one of the stars of the Christian war. is baptism. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, hey, there we go. Easy them. when it's only two. Yes, seven. We'll have to come back to seven. Gosh, seven. They're making a lot up there. Yes. Well, Luther said look, the the definition of a um, sacrament is is defined by what the Bible says, uh, what the Bible has given us. Okay. Rather than first what the Bible has got. And Jesus definitely gives baptism. Yeah. He's Himself baptized. Definitely gives us communion in that he, is the last supper. Yeah. Like, big time. Big time. And. Big, uh, for Luther again they are they're signs from above so you've got they're objective realities that they do the work and they're gifts from God so in Holy Communion it's not that you're remembering what it is that God has done it's instead that God is communicating to you his grace and kindness so he is kind of coming down if you like so and he He called Holy Communion the Mass he called it the Mass throughout his life which the is the mass. kind of Catholic. word yep. um, uh, Unless it's Christmas really cool. time. And you're allowed to call it midnight mass. Yeah, yeah you are. This it's strange. Weird one. Yeah, we But yeah, okay. Yeah. Sorry, David. Yeah, but it, it alliterates. It, yeah, and it makes it punchy. Yeah, People know what yeah, they're talking about. Exactly. So, Roman Catholicism, mass, we now say Holy Communion, they're the same kind of event yeah. in the church calendar. As yeah. it were. And it's a sign from God. That's the point. So, you, again, just like with the Bible, you look outside yourself, you look at this and go, Jesus is giving himself away. It's not about whether I believe it or not, even. It's not about the faith in one sense. See, justification by faith is almost the wrong phrase because it makes it sound like we're justified by the belief I have. That's not right. Interesting. It's justification by Christ. Which is so much stronger. Yeah, yeah. But that's the Lutheran way of thinking about it. Actually, it's true that we are justified by Jesus. We just receive it by faith, by his grace. So you heard always the phrase justification by faith it almost puts more, too much emphasis on the faith. It's outside coming in. So as a result, I mean, Luther would say, I don't know where he'd say this, but I, I've heard of said that Luther said he would accept the Lord's Supper even from the hand of Satan himself. He'd accept baptism even from the hands of Satan himself because they are external signs given by God. They they work in and of themselves. Cool. I mean, we'll come on to the Satan talk because I think many people feel uncomfortable about that yeah. but um, from this thing he's yeah. really subverting, and it sounds like access is, is thrown wide open yeah. and so are there important Christians? Like are there is there a hierarchy in the church? Is there who's an important Christian? Yeah no and yes so he is pretty radical in this view so in medieval Catholicism, the whole service, like we talked about last time, is set up with the altar at the front, the priest is there, it's all in Latin, you're left with no doubt with the magic stuff happening at the front, that's the stuff you need to know and need to benefit from, and the normal activity of Christians is going to mass, not necessarily in the Bible, but seeing the mass happen, uh, and you actually, in mass, you're you allowed to take the bread if you're a normal person, but not the wine, because it'd be terrible if a peasant spilled the blood of Christ. Well, knocking things over is a travesty. Yeah, uh, which does happen in most households. Yeah. We lost a whole cup of juice recently. Did you? And yet yeah, my son is still my son and we <laughs> gave him more juice. Uh, yeah. that seems nuts. I mean yeah. I not know. massively Yeah, that that's yeah, not a lot of access there. I know, not at all. So you end up with a situation where the priests are the most important people yeah. in the church. And we also talked about saints and you know people like Saint Mary, Saint Anne, becoming kind of super Christians that you go to to get close to God. Luther says, "Look, there's none of that. Christ comes to us individually, uh, as individuals in one sense. He kind of comes to us and knows us. Not that you're not connected to a church, but that any believer, when they trust the promises of Jesus, has access to God. I mean, that is an amazing thing. And mm-hmm. he's got this phrase called the priesthood of all believers." which becomes massive in Reformation theology. So, so all of a sudden, it's not just the priests who are close to God or those who are close to saints, but anybody. And you had people, and not only that, but these guys, normal Christians walking through church, can now hear the Bible and learn from it and learn Christian things and then talk to their friends about it. They can disagree with the priest if they wanted to. They could kind of uh, make sure they could check for themselves. Now there's a German Bible, whether or not this is true. All of a sudden, normal Christians are just as privileged as the priests. I mean, in some ways, that sounds like absolute chaos. At the same time, <laughs> at least it's not just Latin being spoken at you, which was my school-level Latin. Um, no understanding what I knew it was happening around. Yeah, in some ways it was chaos. Yeah. Um, but it's a beautiful chaos. In my But the discussion of those ideas is brilliant. Okay. And in some ways provides a huge amount of freedom I can, you can just the, the chaos is a happy chaos of we're all discussing Jesus um, <laughs> which yeah, is amazing but I can see why someone who's used to a hierarchy and an institution would just be like what is happening yeah. where, who's, who's putting blockers on this who's actually making sure real, like true things are coming out from this, if everyone's discussing the word like who's who's arbit uh, who's the arbiter of what what makes sense from what people are saying? Yeah, and Luther knew that, so he he you know he trained Bible teachers. That was his big thing. He really wanted people to train Bible teachers. But what he did do is reject the view that only Bible teaching is the best thing you can do. Interesting, because a lot of people go, "Hey, Bible teaching, everyone should be doing that." Yeah. Well, and he says, "Look, the church does need Bible teachers. That's true, but." you should do your calling as a Christian. He had this kind of uh, idea. There's a book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. He picks up on Luther's idea of the priesthood of all believers and shows how, because of the Reformation, because of what Luther taught, that actually, all of a sudden, people thought, do you know what? I can serve God being a baker, being a butcher, being a soldier, being a mum. I can, I can serve Jesus doing these things. I don't have to. It's not about the religious penance I do." It's about serving him in his world and serving other people, as I know and love God, and it became unbelievably liberating. In the first episode, episode, the first time we call it episode, call um, it part one, part one of the series. I said that there's a there's an argument to say that Luther was one of the fathers of democracy, and it's because of this idea. It's because of this idea that you don't anybody can have access to God. And anybody can serve God through their work. Amazing. Participation gets brought in at this stage rather than just turning up and yeah. receiving. Big time. That's that's very cool. Uh, and so this new way of being a Christian, less kind of I turn up and receive what's good for me and go out and live the rest of my days. Instead, I'm actively participating. Uh who then is uh, opposing the life of a Christian life? I mean, in some ways, you can imagine the medieval Catholic Church would oppose this from a uh, fear of losing their status. But what does Luther say about it? Because he probably doesn't care too much about the Catholic Church causing problems. Well, he does not he doesn't. doesn't. I and mean, they're really, really powerful. And yeah. in fact, at this stage, I mean, there were popes who led armies. Sure. And, uh, you know, this, it is a terrifying thing to stand up to so the Catholic Church. But it's certainly true that he doesn't think the pope is the big enemy of the Christian. Um, he, he, he does refer to the papacy as the Antichrist. So the office of the pope is kind of anti-Christian. Okay. But he does... <laughs> which isn't a great start. Well, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, harsh words. But he does... When he wrote The Freedom of the Christian in 1520, he actually addressed it to the Pope. So he okay. wrote that in a preface, and he said this, I have never thought ill of you personally. I have no quarrels with any man concerning his morals, but only concerning the word of truth. That's nice. That's, yeah, very pleasant. Yeah. yeah. Very pleasant. That's, you know, thorough debate. Yeah, exactly. Know? He's interested in ideas, not necessarily in attacking individuals on the basis of them as a person. He's okay. just like the office of Pope. Fine. So it's not in in Luther's mind. The real enemy of uh, Christians is not actually the medieval Roman Catholic Church. No, they just got it wrong. So who who are they fighting? Well, I think I think this is probably one of those things that actually is going to is one of the most one of the places where it jars most clearly with our culture because basically he has a really vivid perception of Satan of Satan's works which we mentioned before yeah yeah. okay so Satan's coming in in a big way yeah oddly culturally people have this jolly picture of Satan uh, in lots of ways and they personify Satan more often than Christians do I feel like in churches we tend not to talk about Satan directly yeah it's more kind of euphemism and spiritual hardship rather than Satan yeah, I think that's right. I think that's a, yeah, but but for medieval people, Satan's everywhere. You yeah. see Satan in kind of everything, and you hate the devil. He talks about the devil all the time. It's when you read his writing, which is brilliant and so punchy, so clear, he talks about the devil all of the time. Uh, and the main job of the devil is to get you to undo the word, work of Jesus. Is to undo the work of Jesus. Sorry. So if if we are there to believe the external word of God in the Bible. He wants you to doubt the external word of God in the Bible. If you want to look at your baptism and think, I'm saved because I was washed in his blood, you know, symbolized in baptism, he wants you to doubt that. That is what the devil does all the time. And Luther himself felt doubts all of the time. He uh, had this kind of, before he became Protestant, he had this terror that, what if I'm not saved? And actually, even later on in his life, he wrote to friends and said, I have this constant doubt about the goodness of God. Which is sad to hear in lots of ways. Very sad to hear, but incredibly relatable for so many people. Yeah, and that, yeah, it's a really interesting thing that Luther struggled with. Yeah, uh, and I feel like so many others do as well. Yeah, but he his answer to that would help us. He again points to the external word of God, and uh, this is. I think, uh, something he writes in a letter to a friend, one of his pastoral letters. He was brilliant Luther at writing letters to people all the time. Even when there was all kinds of craziness happened, happening, he was really busy. He would take the time to respond to people, friends of his, people in his church, and write them long pastoral letters. And say This is what he said in one letter. I love this quote. This always makes me a little bit emotional, actually. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. That's great. That's, that's really, you can see really that he's good. He's tempted to doubt. He's yes. got a rock, solid faith that what Jesus has done. Saves him. Yeah. That's interesting. In some ways, Luther's personification of Satan helps him with that externalization of his doubts and externalization of his ideas, and then he can kind of talk to Satan yeah. to rebuff the the spiritual attacks, rather than a nebulous uh, "what's going on." Yeah, and it really reminds me of uh, the screw tape messes mm.
1: and various yeah.
0: kind of take on a, a devil constantly spinning world like the events of someone's life. Mm. into, you shouldn't trust this thing you're doing, or Mm. you you become a Christian that's stupid, or whatever it is Uh, and again, that personification of spiritual forces Mm. allows you to respond back in a way different to it's a nebulous force against me. Yeah, I think that's so perceptive, because sometimes, you know, you might just have a random thought, that's just like but is God good, or is this any of this true, and Sometimes, thats I mean, who knows? Sometimes that's just us in our minds. But who knows? Maybe by having this idea of Satan constantly tempting you to doubt, tempting you to hate, you at least know to look away from yourself and look at Jesus, look at God's Word. But you also know I'm not crazy for suddenly doubting. There is a thing there that's trying to stop us from loving Jesus. And the Bible does talk about Satan. Um, That's it. He talks about Satan a lot, an awful lot. And one of debate, big debate number three with Reformation theologians, but also people who study Paul at university, uh, different theological academies, is to what extent is Paul's theology a result of his tortured psychology? Gosh. So he clearly feels deeply. Yeah. I'm a sinner. How can I be saved? Romans 1, 17, 18. The righteousness of God is revealed to me so it's external, it's out there, and I just believe it and I'm saved. Did his, the way he feels about sin himself, the way he feels that humans are doomed, the way he kind of constantly doubts, does he read that into the Bible and therefore misread the Bible? Is a big debate that Pauline scholars, people like that, they think that we've all misunderstood justification by faith. Some people do, in some ways, because we're too Lutheran about reading all of our emotions into it. Interesting. I've never heard of that before. And so... There's kind of a, a tussle between it's just one man's angst engaging with spiritual things and projecting. Yeah, interesting. What's the alternative to that? Uh, well, to be honest, I think that's wrong. I think, <laughs> there, I think go. There, are, there There is no alternative. Though. I think. I think he felt these things deeply because he saw them clearly. But also, so many. It, it's one of those things which rings true because so many people seem to respond to it, like in Romans seven. The, the the frustration of sin in a Christian's life, I feel like resonates with so many people. These things I do not want to do, and yet I keep on doing. Praise God for his grace. Um, as it sounds like Luther had that same feeling. It was a kindred spirit with Paul. Totally. Totally. I mean, he just, yeah, he, he gets that we still sin the rest of our lives. We still struggle with this stuff. Um, this is him. Uh, when it comes to justification by faith, this hymn in Galatians, commentary again, it can't be beaten into our ears enough or too much. Yes, though we learn it and understand it well, yet is there none that takes hold of it perfectly or believes it with his heart. So frail a thing is our flesh and disobedient to the spirit. We can't beat it into our heads enough. No. Yeah. Strong. And so that's that's pretty good. With Luther, how far can we take him? Because we, we would never want to elevate one man to the point where you're like, everything he says is 100%. Where, what are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? Where, where does he kind of, where, where might we want to challenge his thinking? Yeah, well, I think with so many of us, our greatest strengths are our greatest weaknesses. Okay. things that we kind of are very good at, then when you flip them, we become... There, are too much of us in excess, if that kind of makes sense. So i picked on three things that I think are, are maybe true of him that are weaknesses and strengths. So he, first of all, he's very, very steadfast. He's strong. Good. Really good. So I, let's think about it. The Roman Catholic Church dominated the religious scene, dominated yeah. Europe. Yeah. Christianity was medieval Roman Catholicism. Yes. So it needed some unbelievably courageous individuals to stand up and to publicly say, we think you're wrong, and we think this is better. Yeah. Okay. Only Luther really, I think, could have done what he did. I don't know if I, for instance, would have had the courage to stand in front of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and say, I'm not going to change my mind, even if you burn me. To burn the kind of excommunicable bull from the Pope on a bonfire outside. Yeah, that is... uh, Yeah, fair. Um, what's interesting about that, as you said earlier on, the the deep seated humility of Luther to just go to the word, coupled with that steadfastness, feels a bit like no, you're wrong, I'm right. Um, so that, that's just an interesting juxtaposition between his desire for humility before God. Yeah. But once he feels God has revealed something to him, he does not let that go, and it's I don't think those two things are incongruous. Uh, it's just an interesting thing. like totally. The, the, totally. the worldly powers, he's not going to bow before them and humility to them. He'll only be humble before God. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think... I, yeah, and I think the, the problem with his steadfastness is once you fight all of your life, maybe you just get used to fighting. I don't know. But okay. there's a couple of places where I think I wish it'd been a touch more flexible. So, okay. you, I mean... I mean, I say that like I'm an authority. I'm really not. I'm, mean, But but for instance, it seems strange to us in modern times, the fact that he never got on with of Zwingli. Who was another reformer? South of the border in, in Switzerland. In Switzerland. Warrior. A warrior, yeah. yeah. Died in battle, which... Wow, that? Yeah, not many scholars do that today. No. I tried at university to write a paper on Zwingli. Right. Because uh, he was uh, an iconoclast, like burning idols and yeah, getting rid of church ornamentation. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's a statue of Zwingli somewhere. So I tried to delve into what was Bingley thought about a statue of himself, himself. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, why some of these reformers aren't very well known. It's probably because they didn't want idols of themselves being put up around the place. Right. Anyway, would you have liked it? Do you think? No, I think mean, would have hated it. He would have hated it. Yeah. Right. So there's Bingley. Would you quite like that? Have a little statue, statue of himself yeah. somewhere at school. I'll make my own. <laughs> just put it around school wait for people to find it uh, yeah it took me years to do yeah sculpt it um, but it's not about me so sorry Sidon Zwingli he was yeah. another reformer south of the border in Cuba so they people thought if we can get these guys together and they can agree you've got a reformation super state this would be amazing yeah. make huge reformed church yeah and as we said in the last uh, part, part one, one part one they didn't get on they agreed on 14 of the 15 points. They agreed on 4 out of 5 of the sub-points. The thing they couldn't agree on, theologically, was communion. So being said, it's just about you remembering Jesus on the cross when you take communion. Luther saying, no, no, it's not about what you do. It's God's gift to us, external. It's his promises. And so because of that, Luther had a real problem with it. Now, that is an important point of theology. But... Protestant theology has kind of splintered into lots of different denominations, and you wonder if it stayed another few days and they really nutted it through. I mean, maybe they could have come to some kind of agreement, I don't no, know. It seems, seems technical, it, yeah. rather than general principle. But on the other hand, in modern times, we don't care as much about ideas as we should. We we want to practice Christianity, yeah, yeah. and we want to be pragmatic about things, Yeah, and i Maybe he'd say, "Look, you just don't care about theology." That could be. So Luther, very steadfast, but even in the face of a potential ally, kind of was not willing to concede. Yeah, uh, and therefore didn't get the super team. Totally, the, the all-star cast. Totally. The second thing with him is so he's entertaining. His writing is amazing. So of lots of kind of ancient or old theologians. He's one that you really really can read. The Freedom of the Christian, 27 pages, is so readable. You can get through it in 45 minutes. And in fact, I'm going to propose, after this, that within church we have a few people who might want to read it, message each other, a bit of a reading group, Freedom of the Christian. Nice. I mean, he just puts some stuff that is absolutely lovely and absolutely entertaining. Um, For instance, let me uh, well, uh, I'll read this in a second because kind of the flip side of being entertaining and having all these beautiful quotes um so this is yeah this is one example of him being entertaining the gospel is the principal article of all christian doctrine where wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists most necessary it is therefore that we should know this article well teach it to others and beat it into our heads continually and it's quite it's not, yeah it's like that. yeah but the problem with that is once you can, if you can write beautifully, if you are writing something that's not right or good, you're, uh, you being articulate is kind of put in the service of something really bad. Yeah. And I, I want to I say that we think immediately if there's words against the Jews. Sure. Yeah. Very anti-Semitic. Yeah. Towards the end of his life, like I said before, he got a bit more despondent, he got a bit more sad, he got a bit more... Poor. Gosh. And he particularly thought the Jews haven't converted and joined yeah. the Reformation en yeah. mass. Wow. And whereas his earlier words to Jews, he wrote a book called Jesus Christ was a Jew, where he kind of talks about Jesus' Jewish heritage. But later on in his life, he wrote on the Jews and their lies. And it's a horrible, horrible piece of work. Right. He also, just like he, you know, for others as well, he was completely blistering. So whereas in The Freedom of the Christian Man, he wrote it to... Pope and said, I never thought ill of you. He also said this in Proving the Christian the Roman Church, once the holiest of all, has become the most licentious den of thieves, the most shameless of all brothels, the kingdom of sin, death, and hell. It is so bad that even Antichrist himself, if he should come, could think of nothing to add to its wickedness. Yeah, so not funny, potentially, like the no. kind of hyperbolic language. He's not baffled about coming forward. No. No, indeed. Um, gosh. He, yeah, knows how to turn a phrase. He does. He does. But gosh. you can see how... Yeah, I, people might be quite offended. It's a great power. you got to handle that. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Okay. I, I guess the, the last thing is, he is very simple to read. Some have said, is he a little bit simplistic? And uh, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, he is a brilliant theologian, yeah. Luther, and it feels so wrong for me, a kind of cure it in their early thirties to even dare right. to kind of comment upon the theology, but he, he really cared about being simple, so he really, for instance, he taught children deliberately, he wrote catechisms, catechisms are kind of a question and answer, uh, like an exercise that you might use to teach people theology, Cool. To teach people stuff. Can we do one? Yeah, we can do one. Here's one I found earlier. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, so this is about the Ten Commandments. Okay. So imagine you're ten years old. Yeah. Um, why don't you ask questions and I'll okay. be the answer? So, uh, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? It means we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does this mean? We should fear and love God, and we should not use his name to curse, swear, practice magic, lie or deceive. But in every time of need, call upon him, pray to him, praise him, and give him thanks nice okay so a little parcel of information framed in a kind of call and response question and the idea is kids in his church would learn that great and lots of them did nice so he I mean, then you go away knowing a decent amount of theolo- uh theology without needing the complex web of how it looks together and preaching must be clear yeah. it has to be clear but it there's a chance in some of his preaching that he's a little bit simplistic. So he's got this thing. Remember when I said, law convicts, makes you realize you're sinful. The gospel comes in and makes you realize you're loved. Yeah. He kind of saw that dichotomy everywhere. And basically, in all of his preaching, it would follow that pattern. He'd take a text, whatever text it was, and he'd say, this is how you're not good. This is how the story shows you're bad. And then say, this is how Jesus is good and saved you. And that kind of ended up being kind of, what Carl Truman says, he's read I mean he's got volumes and volumes of his work. Carl Truman he read all the stuff he says to us a lot of his sermons feel like they're quite samey. Okay. It's all you're bad. Bad sound. Yeah. Jesus good. Great. But you just get that every kind of every week. And we've all been in chill services where it's felt like that. <laughs> uh, I think we can potentially give him a pass in that. The aim is people understand, yeah, this this really crucial point, and if you're on the cutting edge, you don't want to go into technicalities early doors. So, no. in defence of Luther, there, James, yeah, yeah, um, no, I I take your point. Like, if you oversimplify something, it can either get stale and a bit samey, or you just miss that there's actually depth and nuance within these things which is really worthwhile to understand. And I think that's right, because... So, on my shelf back home, I have got Calvin's complete commentaries. He kind of lectured on all different books in the Bible. shelf must be hanging on. Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> it's massive. It's like ooh, 18 volumes, Yeah, it's a big, big chunk. Um, I that's... actually bought it to myself as a breakup present when a girl broke up with me. Wow, just delve into the text. You know, Thanks. see what Calvin has to say on breakups. <laughs> yeah. See if we can get me through this. Yeah, it it's a weird one. Yeah, um, I can imagine. As a, as a, and actually, they're very heavy and I've moved house a lot. So there have been, there's been a bit of a liability. Petrol spent on those days. A lot of petrol. The, the point is, he has got those commentaries because he's lectured on loads of bits of the Bible. And his insights oh, okay. are still helpful today. He gets books of the Bible. Yeah. Apart from Luther's commentary on Galatians, which is a banger, published in 35, so towards the end of his ministry. 1535. just 1535, yep. yeah. Make sure to place it where we are. No, yeah, that's good. Um, apart from that commentary that aren't his great works are not Bible commentaries you don't go to Luther to work out the details of what a text says because, um, you go there to see Jesus yeah. yeah okay again I feel like a noble endeavour at the same time I can see why preachers veer towards Calvin yeah yeah swerve take a swerve in some ways out of those you know some are more serious than the other. The fact that we don't have lots of commentaries of him, take it or leave it. The fact that he, I mean, as I said in part one, the fact that he was so anti Semitic towards the end of his life is a real shame and a yeah. blight upon his record. Yeah. And the Nazis would happily quote that work and have a copy at the Nuremberg rallies, which shows how desperately terrible some of the content is. Yeah. Yeah. And for so some people, they would find that difficult to get over. Um, but again, that slightly falls into some of Luther's own pitfalls of being overly simplistic about someone's life, and um, and being uh, somewhat stubborn and unwavering on uh, your opinions of what it means to be tolerant. Big time. Uh, cause Luther just seems so helpful, seems so relatable. Yeah, as a person. Yeah. Uh, and part one, there's so really nice, good. St- I say nice stories, good stories yeah. that just flesh Luther out. So doesn't seem like this unattainable sort of paragon of no like righteousness, as it were, mm. in that he's quite willing to acknowledge his own faults. Yeah, um, so let me ask you a question as we come to an end. Okay, so uh, I noticed we haven't managed in 60 minutes to do this thought either. Um, so if anyone's still listening, who knows? Um, if you think Luther on Sunday walked into St. Michael's, what do you think are the things he, from what you've gauged, from what you've Heard what do you think he would like about St. Michael's and what do you think he would find a bit harder? Nice, uh, okay, Luther's strolling in. Hello, danke, welcome. You do have to relive the I'm whole conversation, just getting myself in the zone, okay. No, this you know, sprung upon me. Um, I think from what you said, uh, Luther would really like that it's, it's in the language of. Mm. The world, like everyone understands what's going on. Um, the sermon is preached from a Bible which is in the same language that the preacher is preaching in, which everyone else speaks. I think he would recognise that and think, "Hooray! This is great." Um, people get what's going on, and uh, it, they care about the Bible. Uh, they, they're not putting a lot of store in all these other things. Hmm. I think. That would stand out to him pretty strongly. You uh, might not like so much. Uh, well, I think that, to be honest, that is a great one. I think, you know, he'd love to see the word preached. He'd love to see that. It's clearly, St. Michael's clearly a reformed church. Yeah. It's not the medieval Roman Catholic church we see. Certainly not. And I think he, he would be rejoicing in that. I think that would be really good. Um, hey, well, well on us. Yeah. Luther's seal of approval I it's, wonder if he, he might um, I mean you said earlier actually before we started recording about justification by faith oh yeah we'll well, share about that well I, it's a really interesting one his, his absolute kind of focus on justification by faith and the freedom that seemed to give him particularly even in his doubts to to not kind of turn inwards. Uh, in guilt and shame, and instead, I remember hearing a story which may never have existed, but I, I think about it sometimes, where Luther had a vision of the devil at the end of his bed, and the devil was attempting to give up his faith and uh, accusing him of being such a terrible sinner. And Luther's response was to, you know, find some way to sin all the more and taunt the devil into thinking, You can't get me. I'm free from your your bondage, yeah Christ is with me and I'm safe and I don't know I feel like it, potentially uh, we can caveat away that freedom because we're so fearful a bit like the medieval Catholic Church of people just going, oh, so I don't need to do anything different in my life i'm I'm free i'm I'm safe and so we caveat away but oh yeah, but you've got to be Working towards godliness, you've got to be working towards righteousness, which just reintroduces that anxiety of, oh, maybe I'm, I'm yeah. not doing this. Yeah. Um, and if you've already got doubts like Luther, without that freedom to know my sin means nothing now, yeah, because it's Jesus who has done this, you can you can mess yourself up. So I wonder if you might think, actually, are we still holding true to the idea that Jesus is the one who is our salvation? And I, yeah, and you were saying earlier. You don't necessarily think that's a big, say, Michael's problem. No, I, that's not <laughs> what I'm saying. I'm just, I, but just the I evangelicalism see. in this country could be even stronger on justification by faith. Yeah, yeah I, the, I think that's People out. have talked yeah. to me about it and said, "Oh, it seems like we've got to do loads more stuff." I come away from the church service feeling guilty that I'm not doing enough. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think maybe not so Michael's, but some people might be coming thinking, Where, "Where's this?" where's this gone? Yeah, I think that's, I think, yeah, we, we can never be harmed by having a bigger focus on it. I, I think as well, given his big view of the Mass, of the Holy Communion, of saying, this is an external gift of God to mm. us. Um, lots of evangelical churches would do Mass, or do Communion, sorry, uh, you know, I think we, I've practiced to do it about three times a month or so. He, he might say, take it all the time, take it yeah. all the time. And he, you know, you would find that strange. Yeah. Um, but all in all, it comes back to this big thing we'd be saying. Big God. God saves. Small humanity. Humanity's simple. Really Well, James, thank you so much for taking us through that. Um, to uh, ape a very famous podcast. It was a oh. oh, That was great time <laughs> No, it was, uh, it was a, a treat. I learned so much about Luther's thinking, and in part one, about his life. And who knows, maybe there'll have to be a part three just to... Tidy up loose ends. <laughs> a little uh, addendum to the, the, the two-parter. Yeah. And uh, wow, I loved it. And it you know it felt very Lutheran. Such yes. a having a beer. Very pleasant. While the of the like, shall I finish with these particularly beautiful words of Luther? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, he was someone who just really, really loved Jesus. Uh, you must withdraw your minds wholly from all cogitations and searching of the majesty of God. And look only upon this man, Jesus Christ, who sets himself forth to us to be a mediator, and says, Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Thus doing, you will perceive the love, goodness, and sweetness of God. You will see his wisdom, power, and majesty, sweetened and tempered to your capacity. Yes, and you'll find it, this mirror and pleasant contemplation in all things according to the saying of Paul to the Colossians, in Christ I hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Amen. Amen, that's grand. Thanks, James. Uh, thank you everyone. Goodbye. Bye bye.